So this morning, I want to do a, kind of a, a parenthetical uh, message to what we were talking about last week. So last week, we began looking at Titus 3, 4 to 7, uh, a passage which is really one long sentence, uh, and it provides us what I call the four radiant gems of God's salvation that, that magnify His mercy in order to help us respond compassionately to the undeserving around us. And we examined the first two of those radiant gems of the salvation that God has given us last week. And these gems reflect on the glorious perfections of our Savior and our God. And radiant gem one was the fact that, that God's kindness uh, and His love for mankind were manifested to us at our salvation. And radiant gem two was the fact that God saved us by His mercy alone and not by any works or deeds of righteousness which we have done. And these aspects of our salvation are like facets of a diamond that sparkle and reflect the brilliance of the one who is light and love. And I mentioned to you last week that I would likely have more to, to, to say and to teach to you this week about the fact that God saved us by his mercy alone. And uh, last week, much of our focus on that particular um, gem was on the fact that our good works contributed nothing. Our good works had absolutely nothing to do with the motives that that uh, God had for saving us. And so as I was studying Titus 3, 5 this week, I found myself uh, unable to move beyond the immensity, excellency, and the overwhelming benevolence of the mercy of God. So this morning, we are going to do something of a, a word study in our Bibles uh, we must understand that it's more than a word study. This is really a study of God himself of his, and uh, of his mercy. It's, it's a study of God himself for, for one of his many perfect attributes. It, um, and that is his mercy. So through the scriptures, we will seek this morning to put God on display with the goal of gazing upon his wonderful mercy that was manifested in our salvation and really throughout the scriptures. So in a way, this is a fitting tribute to offer and our worship to our Lord and our God here of the week. Uh, we celebrate Christmas prior to Christmas. Next week, I'll give a specific Christmas message. But I thought it was very fitting as we reflect upon the gift of Jesus Christ that we reflect upon the mercy that he gives us in our salvation. Without the, without the mercy, without the grandiose mercy of of God the Father, uh, without sorry, without the grandiose mercy of God, the Father would not have sent the Son. The, the, the second person of the Trinity would not have become God incarnate, and we would still be spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins without any possibility of salvation. And for this alone, we should rejoice in Him and be so thankful for the mercy of God. Well, for starters, I'm going to read, go back to Titus, I'm going to read uh, the first seven verses of chapter 3. And that'll serve as our starting point this morning for gazing upon the mercy of God. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let your mind fixate and ruminate this morning on on that phrase in verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but this. think about this phrase, but according to his mercy. But according to his mercy. That, that captures everything that we want to say this morning. But according to his mercy. In other words, we would be completely lost. The only reason we're saved is according to his mercy, which really stands in contrast to those deeds which we have done in righteousness. That is, our works contributed absolutely nothing. You know, what, what motivated God to save you? Nothing in and of yourselves. Nothing within me. Nothing I, I have done, nothing I could do or will do motivated God to save me. You could say the same thing about yourself if you're saved this morning. God saved us according to His mercy. That phrase stands in stark contrast to the, the deeds or the phrase, not according to the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. What, what motivated God to save us, as I mentioned last week, is simply His mercy. You understand there's nothing outside of God Himself that motivated Him to save us. Nothing impacted God. Nothing changed Him. This is who He is. He is the saving God. And so as I mentioned in the beginning, this message is kind of like a big parenthesis, looking at that, that mercy of God. So this morning I want you to see the glory of God as radiated through His mercy. Now mercy is one of the attributes of God. There's one um, systematic theology, biblical doctrine, who likes to use the phrase perfections rather than attributes of God. These are the perfections of God. Um, Mercy is one of the eternal perfections of God. It's, it's who he is. He, he can't deny himself so he could never be otherwise. Now, it's not the only attribute. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're not looking at all the attributes of God this morning. We're just looking at his mercy. But it, he is a merciful God. It's not as if he turns his mercy on and off. And isn't that such a wonderful um, attribute or perfection that any sinner at any time, can call out to God for mercy genuinely and receive that mercy. You don't have to come on Sunday. You don't have to come on Monday. They're open. He's open 24 hours a day. He's not low on staffing. He can help you all the time. Right? This is who he is. Any sinner, any time, at any place, in any language, in any culture, in any ethnicity, no matter the skin color, no matter what, no matter what you've done, even if you're in prison, no matter what you've done, the sinner who calls for mercy receives that mercy. That is the God who, who saves us. That is the true God. And it's, it's an amazing thing. And this is, how, this is how God works. And it's not just true of mercy, but we have an invisible God. You can never see him. I can never see him. He's been made manifest and God incarnate. But one of the ways in which we see God and know who he is is by his mercy. 
You see, mercy, as I mentioned before with kindness, mercy uh, is an emotion, as I'll explain in a minute, but it's not just an emotion. It's something that happens. Mercy takes action. Mercy acts and does. Right? If someone sees someone else in need and has the ability to meet that need and doesn't meet that need, that person is not merciful. That's not God. Right? So what what I'm saying is mercy is very practical. Well, what I'd like to do to start with is, is to get a bird's eye view of what the biblical concept of mercy is. And and, it, and it, mercy is one of those things, it's, it's like I found that it was difficult to define in one sentence, easy to identify in action. So later we'll, we'll get to the, to the easier part. We're going to start with a little more difficult part. It's not difficult because the concept is difficult for us to understand. It's difficult because it's so multifaceted. It, there's so much interrelated with the idea of mercy. There's not mercy without love. There's not mercy without compassion. All these ideas flow together even in the English language. This morning I'll start by reading one uh, biblical encyclopedia on how they define uh, the biblical concept of mercy. Present usage of the word mercy, that is how we use it, identifies mercy with compassion in the sense of a willingness to forgive an offender or, or an adversary and more generally, simply by a disposition to spare or help another. This disposition, although inwardly felt, manifests itself outwardly in some kind of action. It is evident that mercy combines a strong emotional element, usually identified as pity, compassion, or love, with some practical demonstration of kindness in response to the, to the condition or needs of the object of mercy. And, and so to to understand the, the rich meaning of the biblical idea of mercy, we have to consider a, a variety of biblical words. Uh, as there's no one single Hebrew or Greek word that captures all the nuances. And these words are, are translated uh, variously depending on the context. And, and we understand that, that the word mercy is somewhat complex even in the English language, as I just mentioned. It's the idea of compassion. It's the idea of pity. It's the idea of love. All these things flow together in the concept of mercy. For starters, look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are three important terms to consider. There, there are more that, that could be considered, but we're going to limit ourselves to uh, mentioning these three terms. The, the first one is rakaim, and it's said to be the most common Hebrew word conveying the idea of mercy in the Old Testament. Though I found uh, that many of the, of the English versions... Uh, that I checked, or at least the New American Standard Bible, translate this as compassion. Uh, we're told that it conveys the original sense of a physical seat of compassion for one another. It's kind of interesting, if you study the Old Testament, the, the idea of the seat of emotion for, in the Old Testament for a Jew would be in the bowels, right? So when you, when you were moved with emotion, they would describe it as coming from the bowels, Right, which sounds very strange to our ears, because we talk about love being what from the heart, right? But there, when you're truly moved, in other words, it's an inner feeling. It is not something superficial. It's coming from deep within. That that's the idea here. Uh, the feelings, the, the the feelings of of the compassion. These deep feelings. Let me let me just give you some scenarios to help you understand what we're talking about. You've experienced these. 
we're told that this word conveys the original sense of what a mother um, feels when she sees her baby is hungry. Uh, picturing the uh, 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 mother of a young baby and the child is crying, what does she do? She, she moves with mercy and compassion to, to meet that need. I mean, you don't really have to tell a woman to do that. I mean, I, I recognize there's sin corrupts everything. So you can find um, exceptions to what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, but, but it is in, in God's order, it is very natural for a woman uh, to uh, want to care for her child and just do that instinctively. Right? She feels that for her child. Uh, we, we see this in a sense in Isaiah 49.15 here. Again, this is using the imagery, but it's God who's doing the talking. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. So even God acknowledges there may be some women that that forget that compassion, but he will not forget. Or there's the feeling that a father gets when he yearns to help his wayward child. We see a picture of this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20, where God says, speaking, using the term Ephraim to speak of his nation, his his chosen nation, Israel. He says, it's Ephraim. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So there's that father who, whose, whose son has gone away. He's gone wayward. He has rebelled. But it is the father who yearns for his son to come home. That's, that's, that, that, that's a ceiling of mercy and compassion. Uh, you know, there's the story of the New Testament. We call it the story of the prodigal son. But really, the the what is demonstrated there in that parable is just the the mercy of the father, the love of the father to take even the prodigal son back in, and that's that's kind of that idea. Or use another example. This this mercy or compassion we're talking about is the feeling of a loyal husband who yearns to restore his unfaithful wife to himself. You say, what a difficult situation. Yes, but God too identifies with this. In Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, uh, using the analogy of Israel as his wife, as an unfaithful wife, he says, even after she has been unfaithful, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And in each one of these examples, it demonstrates the deep feeling of compassion, of mercy that a, that a person experiences. In this case, it's God, isn't it? God is like a mother. God is like that father. And God is like that husband. In each of these examples, God is the one who's speaking of his mercy, his compassion, even when that mercy is undeserved. There are two other words that are commonly related to the concept of mercy. I'll, I'll mention them just briefly for the sake of time. The, the second one I'll mention this morning is hesed, hesed, which is often translated loving kindness. It speaks of a loyal love, which is undying. But this word is also translated mercy, depending on the context. This word includes the elements of loyalty, 
excuse me, loyalty, devotion, or faithfulness to the demands of a covenant. It is this love which moves God to keep his covenant. Then there's another word, shanan, which relates to the idea of finding favor, that, that one would find favor to, to help another person, to have pity on them or to spare them, um, to spare those that would otherwise be destroyed or those things that would otherwise perish. Now, turning to the New Testament, the Vines Expository Dictionary notes three New Testament words that are related to mercy. Elios is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. An example of this would be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there was a need. God met that need. Then the second word is oktim ramos, uh, that is pity, compassion for the ills of others. Uh, this, this word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God sees our, our situation, knows that we need comfort, and his mercy moves him. He's the father of all mercies, meaning he's, he's the one with, uh, that, that sends mercies to us, that compassion, that comfort to us, and then calls us to relay that comfort and that mercy on to others. Then there's one other word, splanchnon, uh, referring to affections, affections of the heart, especially to those in need. You see somebody in need and you're, you're moved uh, to help them. So it's very, very similar to, to one of the Old Testament words. We, the first one we looked at, it talked about how that emotion um, uh, came from very deep within him. The, the verb form of this word appears several times describing Jesus' responses to people in need. For example, in Matthew 9, 36, uh, I'll just read that. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. There's the true heart of our Lord and our God. He sees people who are dispirited. They're distressed like sheep without a shepherd and he wants to meet that need. That's that shepherd's heart. A shepherd will feel compassion for them. Later on in, in uh, verse uh, chapter 15, verse 32, it said that Jesus called his disciples and he said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. Right? So here is Jesus. People have been with him. Whatever supplies they brought have been been used up. They don't have anything to eat. He doesn't want to send them away empty handed, empty handed um, because of his compassion. And you know the story. He uses that as an occasion to, to, to demonstrate to his disciples his power to, to create bread and provide food for uh, his disciples. So summarizing uh, all these words into kind of a, a more concise statement um, is, is what we would like to do at this point. And I'm going to rely upon the uh, uh, systematic theology, biblical doctrine to help us there. And, and in, their, in uh, 
Mayhew and MacArthur, Drs. Mayhew and Dr. MacArthur, in their systematic theology, state this about God's mercy. God's mercy describes him as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures, that is, people, such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition, even though they do not deserve it. As with, his, as with grace, this perfection of God does not consider the merit or lack of merit of the people to whom God gives mercy. Okay? And with that, we can rejoice. When God chooses to pour out mercy, it's, it's not because we've merited it, which is great because if we had merited it, there might be a day when we don't merit it. But the fact is, every day we don't merit it. And therefore, he gives his mercy to all who seek him. And as I will show later, really none of us would have sought his mercy without him working in our lives to begin with. So he's the one that takes, that initiates that mercy. Well, the Lord has shown and manifested his mercy to us. One of the key components of the idea of mercy is that it's, it's, a, it's an actionable idea. It, it's a feeling that, that, that comes within you, but it never stays just a feeling. It moves into action. So how do we see, this is where it gets a little easier to, to track along, to, to see it. God's mercy is manifested to us, you know, in just dozens of, I would say hundreds of cases, maybe even thousands of cases in, in the Old Testament. It was simply quite overwhelming to try to, to try to bring all this in. So I'm just going to be um, very selective in what we looked at and what we look at from, from the scriptures. God's mercy is demonstrated. First, look at the Old Testament. We see demonstration of God's mercy from the very book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, God mercifully promised them a Savior. He, he could have just judged them immediately, but that wasn't his plan. It was his mercy that, that provided a Savior. And we know about the promised seed in Genesis 3.15. It is that promised seed, the the fruition or realization of the fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that we celebrate this week in the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. When, when the sinful pair, that is Adam and Eve, needed covering, when they realized they were both naked and unashamed, they, they tried to stitch together some kind of clothing with just leaves, which was not appropriate, did not cover them properly. So what did the Lord do? Though the word mercy isn't used, it gives us a picture in... in um, Genesis uh, 3.21, we read, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, garments of skin means what? An animal died. That first sacrifice. So not only is God providing a covering of skin to clothe their, their naked bodies, but he's also providing the first sacrifice, picturing the sacrifice of Christ, which would cover our sins and take away our sins. That's how merciful and compassionate God is. We see the demonstration of God's mercy in the days of Moses in, in many ways. One that I think is particularly noteworthy that I want to bring to your attention is God's mercy of providing a way for the people to meet with him and talk with him as in the days of Adam and Eve before the fall. God provided a mercy seat as part of the Ark of the Covenant. This is, a, this is a slightly different word, but it carries the same kind of idea. It was a place where people could find mercy. This, the mercy seat is kind of a, uh, it's a bad translation, but I don't think there's a better way to do it. 
Why do, why do I say it's bad? Well, because it's not a seed. Right? It's not a, it, it is at, that's the best translation, but it's not a place where anyone would sit. Right? And I just want to turn your attention there for a moment, because uh, I think it's important to see this. Go, turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. So God is giving instructions to Moses on building the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to jump into these instructions on at verse uh, 17. Because we really just want to focus in on this idea of the mercy seat. Verse 17 of Exodus 25. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other. You shall make the cherub, cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat as it to, at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are, ter, are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment to the sons of Israel. So there's, there's God's providing. He's provided this mercy seat. Now what's, what's special about the mercy seat? Why do I draw your attention to it? Well, the book of Leviticus tells us um, that this mercy seat is to be a place of not only where God meets with them, but where sins are atoned for. It is a place of propitiation, a place of atonement. The, the, the book of Leviticus tells us that the mercy seat was where the blood of the bull that was sacrificed for sin and the blood of the goat would be sprinkled on the day of atonement. So the, the, the priest was to sacrifice a bull and bring the blood of that bull into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on this mercy seat. Right? That was to atone for the priest's sins. Then he was to go out, take a, say he had two goats, take one of the goats, sacrifice that goat, bring the blood of that goat back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat for the sins of the people. Right? So in two different ways, you have a picture of the Lord's shedding the shedding of blood to, to atone for sins and then interesting enough that second goat that i mentioned the priest would go out put his hands on the goat to identify with the goat that goat would symbolically and ceremonially take all the sins of the people and that goat would be sent out into the wilderness that's your proverbial scapegoat that takes the sin away all that pictures god's mercy so god even here is is, is making a way for our sins, his people's sins, to be removed and for him to meet with his people. As we read this in number 7, verse 89. Now when Moses, and afterwards, Moses went into the tent of the meeting to speak with him, that is God. He heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, so he spoke to him. You see, God created this mercy seat this is great work of art. He, had, he commanded it to be created so, so that his people would see nothing about himself. 
Right? So get the image. Here's the mercy seat. It's got the blood sprinkled on it, blood atoned for, so that people could could approach God. You have the cherubim with their wings um, touching each other, one on each end of this Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim's faces are facing the mercy seat, right? Because between the angels, the cherubim, and uh, under the angels' wings and above the mercy seat, God would speak. There was nothing there, folks. God is invisible, but it's from that place that his voice resonated and he, from which he spoke to Moses. And all of that is a mercy. You see, without God working like that, to, to be able to, to atone for our sins, to take our sins away, he couldn't meet with his people. Right? It would be like on Mount Sinai when he told the people, don't approach me, don't even come up on the mountain, don't even allow your animals to get onto the mountain or they will die. That is how holy and righteous and perfect God is. But he meets our need. He provides forgiveness for our sins he reaches out in mercy and provides what we need in order to draw us to himself. And, and obviously, all of this is perfectly fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly demonstrated God's mercy. Uh, just as a, a kind of a case in, in, in point, uh, I'll just read Hebrews 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, Therefore he, that is Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in every way, Jesus Jesus typified this. Jesus was the mercy seat. Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus' blood was shed on our behalf. He was the bull. He was the, the goat offering. He was the bull offering. He was the scapegoat that took all our sins away. And he's also God himself, God incarnate who speaks to us and meets us right, in his days of incarnation and one day when he returns. Jesus, who came from the Father and was one with the Father, taught us all about the Father. And he came to manifest to us who the Father was. In John 1.18, we read this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him and that, that phrase he has explained him is like it's similar to the word exposit he has exposited jesus he has taken uh jesus has taken um uh what he knows about the father and taught us who the father was he he only says what the father tells him to say he only did what the father tells him to do in, in john 14 beginning of verse 8 as he approached um, the night, be, really, is the night before he was crucified. As he approached the cross, uh, as he was with his disciples, Philip said to him, "Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us." And Jesus said to him, "Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative." But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So Jesus did works and these works pointed to him, pointed to the fact that he was God. And because he was God, there are visible demonstrations of God's mercy. So go to the New Testament, go to the book of Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to see some of these. 
again here, the goal this morning is to just gaze upon the marvelous uh, beauty of the mercy of God. Look at chapter 9 of Matthew, beginning at verse 27. So this is a period where Jesus is doing many miracles. And news had spread through all that land, verse 26. And Jesus went on from there. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them to see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole land. And, the, and the, so they, the, they didn't remain silent as Jesus had wanted them to. There were, there were reasons for that we won't dig into right now. But understand that the men asked for what? Mercy. They, they could have said, Lord, we want our eyes to be healed. And yet they just said mercy. It's that idea of mercy. So, so in other words, God isn't like, um, say, a, a human priest today who who tries to bring a blessing on someone that that has no visible manifest, no visible result. You know, uh, priests and and many uh, uh, systems, including like the Roman Catholic Church, where there's a priest, or other systems where you, you or the Orthodox Church, whatever, you've got a priest and he'll he'll give a blessing on something, but there's no way you can prove that that thing is blessed. Right? There's no visible manifestation. In fact, I would say he's, he's just going through the rote motions that no human being has the ability to bless another in that sense. But here, when God brings mercy and blessing, there's a visible result. These men are healed. Their eyes are opened. That is God's mercy. They ask for mercy, they receive sight. See how practical it is. Uh, continue reading with me in verse 32. As they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. So again, there's this conflict building with the Pharisees, who are known not for the mercy, right? They are the counter-type, the anti-type to a God of mercy. But again, though the word mercy isn't used, this is a picture of mercy where you have a man who is demon-possessed. He's mute. God heals him. Jesus heals him. Casts the demon out and gives him the ability to speak. That is mercy. Uh, Turn to chapter 15. Again, there's just there's so many examples of this. We have to be very selective. Turn to, turn to Matthew 15. Look at verse 21. This is the story about the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, again, not a Jewish woman, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, A woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. That's a little strange story, just to unpack it just very briefly. It's using imagery, right? Uh, when when he when, here's this woman, she's not a Jew. See, she is from the district of, of Tyre in Sidon. She's a Canaanite woman, right? So a historical enemy of the Jews, right? Yet she is coming in faith to Jesus. And at this point, Jesus isn't ministering uh, to a lot of Gentiles, to those outside of Jerusalem. And so he focuses, he stays focused. He knows perfectly what he, he, he's doing. And he wants to elicit her faith and he wants to teach his disciples the lesson all at the same time. And so she begs him for help. She's, she's that, that picture of just that woman who will not, she, she knows that Jesus is God, that he's a God of mercy and she will just be persistent until God gives her his answer. You know, sometimes God is a gracious, God is a gracious and merciful God. And yet sometimes he withholds that mercy for a time, right? To help us to be persistent in prayer. So this is an example of her persisting in prayer. Not because God's evil, right? Because he wanted to accomplish something that would be greater uh, if, if the timing was held off. And you see this, uh, kind of the, the uh, his response is somewhat uh, puzzling when he, he uses, he, first he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the, of the house of Israel. So he's seeking those who know they're lost. Right? In other words, those that think they're not lost um, don't aren't seeking him. But he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she kept begging him. And in verse 26, he says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, what's, what is he doing here? Right? It's a strange illustration for us. But the idea is that dogs are considered to be unclean. Right? So like many of us have had dogs in our home, have pets, have dogs for pets. And they're like, they're almost like sometimes part of the family, but not so in the, the Middle Eastern context, especially in New Testament times. Dogs were unclean. You would not have them in your home. And, and so what is he saying? He's using the imagery of, of the Gentiles speaking of dogs. You can find, you can go check this and, and cross-reference this later. So he's, he's, he's referencing the fact that the Gentiles are like, like the dogs. So God is bringing bread to his people, to his children, the Jews, and, G, and, and so he's saying, it's not good to take the children's bread. I, I came for the, for the Jews. It's not good to, to give that to the, to, to the dogs. But look at a response. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Right? So recognizing that, that, yes, Lord, you came for Israel. You were Jewish to the Jewish people primarily. Right? It would overflow to the Gentiles. But... She, he's saying is that, that, that those blessings for Israel were always meant to overflow to the Gentiles. Right? And because she, a Canaanite woman, recognizes this, Jesus said, your faith is great. Your daughter is healed. Right? That's God's mercy in action. It's just a beautiful, beautiful mercy of, a picture of his mercy. Then look, uh, if you would, just... Um, a little, bit, a little bit further in, in Matthew 15, look at verse 29. Departing from there, Jesus went by the Sea of Galilee, 
And having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. And so the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. There are so many people that are healed that the biblical authors don't record them all. They just said many. Many came. And many scholars believe that during the time of Jesus' ministry, he, he practically uh, uh, banished uh, sickness and illness and diseases because he healed so many. I mean, there were still sick people. But the, the idea is the Lord healed, and he healed out of his mercy. They came requesting mercy. The word mercy isn't used in the text, but that's the idea. They're coming asking for mercy. The Lord provides it for them. Turn to the, turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark 5. It's a passage you uh, no doubt have read about the demoniac uh, from the Gerasenes who was healed. I'm just going to read this to you and make a few uh, observations. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn off by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, gnashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out to the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So that gives you an idea of how many demons this particular man had. Right? You could say that this is the biblical concept of a superman. Right? The chains were simply ripped apart. A Samson-like strength was being manifested by this man. But at the same time, the demons were torturing this man to death. God rescued him. Look at the, the herdsmen ran away, reported what had happened in the city. People were terrified. But, but look at verse 15. When they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, setting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man, that is the man who had been healed, the man who had been demon-possessed, was imploring him that he might accompany him. And, and he, that is Jesus, did not let him, but said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Mercy. And he went away 
and began to proclaim that Decapolis, what great things God had done for him. So here you have a, an obedient disciple. We saw one that was not so obedient earlier, but here we have an obedient. But notice Jesus says, go and proclaim the, the mercy, the mercy that God has done for you. Right? So again, why am I pointing out this? Because mercy is very practical. Notice this man, in, in some cases, the people seek Jesus. And again, that's God's by, that's, that's really by God's initiation in their lives. We don't, we don't see that part, but they come to Jesus. In this example, the, the demoniac doesn't, doesn't come to Jesus seeking mercy, right? The demons know who Jesus is and they say, don't send us, you know, don't, don't send us to the, to the abyss, uh, before the time. That's really, um, what they were, they, they were not wanting to be sent out before the, the end of time. And so they, they were reckoning with who he is. But this wasn't the man coming in faith asking for mercy. He couldn't have done that, bound by so many demons. The Lord initiated this merciful act to show his power and to demonstrate his mercy. Uh, time fails us to look at all that I wanted to look at, the healing of blind Bartimaeus, the, the healing of the ten leprous men who, who sought, and their words are, we, they seek mercy from Jesus. He heals all ten of them, nine of which are Jews that don't return. But there's one Samaritan that returns to give thanks and to worship Jesus. And Jesus tells him, your, your faith has healed you. That's God's mercy demonstrated through Jesus Christ. And that's who he is. And then, and then we could turn to the, to the wider New Testament where we see God's mercy demonstrated in a passage like we've been studying in Titus, but, but also in other passages of Scripture that I've read in Ephesians 2, what, 1 to 10. Um, I've read portions of that to you. And then uh, I'll just read to you First Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, which tell us that, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that that's, it's God's great mercy that causes all those other blessings to flow through, that God meets our needs and provides what we need. Oh, beloved, God desires that, that all people who have experienced his mercy, like this demoniac we talked about, that we that he wants all of those people who have experienced that kind of mercy to go and proclaim the mercies that we have received. Those who have, who are truly saved and have a relationship with him will be like him. Um, here I'm thinking about verses like First Peter one verses fourteen to sixteen that say, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lust, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you." You yourselves be holy in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Or we can think about the passage in 1 John 1 that tells us in the beginning of verse 5 that this message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. 
So here, here at this part of the message, we look at something very practical. Not only the practical need that God has met for us through his mercy, which he poured out upon us, but also the reciprocal mercy that he intends to flow through our lives to others. Jesus had stern and sharp rebukes for those who claim to be God's children and do not show mercy. We talked about the the Pharisees. Uh, I won't take time to go um, the, through the whole um, the passages I intended to go through, showing how the Pharisees were not how they lacked compassion. But what one thing God told them, just in summary, He says He He tells them in uh, Matthew uh, nine. Being at verse 13, he says, go and learn what I desire. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. That's a, that's a reference to Hosea 6.6. 6. In Hosea 6.6, 6, uh, God says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. The whole premise of this is that God wants them to learn that there are the, there's the, the core, the heart of the law is moral and internal. It is not merely in the external, the, 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 the ceremonial law that the Pharisees excelled at. They excelled at the ceremonial law, but they totally failed at the internal law. They, they failed to have mercy. Mercy was more important than tithing. He's saying you should have tithed, but you should have shown mercy. But that's more important. All that to say is God wants his people to be merciful. Romans one thirty one describes the unbelieving as unmerciful. So God works in the lives of his people like other areas when we know God, his communicable attributes, that is his attributes that he conveys to us through his spirit and instructed by his word flow through us. Mercy is to be one of those. We could say an unmerciful Christian is a contradiction in terms uh, Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It, in, um, we read about uh, the, how uh, Peter and John gave God's mercy through the healing of the man who was lame. You know, when, when he went, it's kind of interesting as a, uh, a related word, when the man was sitting outside the temple begging for alms, the word begging for alms, the word alms, is actually a word related to this idea of mercy. He was asking for mercy. He's asking for money. But that the, the word there for, for money, the alms, is related to the word mercy. And what Peter and John tell him. You know, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give. And they healed him. They gave him way beyond what he was ever asking for. A good picture of what the Lord does for us. And I will add that, that, that we see beautiful examples of, um, of people who know the Lord, who are overflowing with mercy. Dorcas is a New Testament example. Right? How she's described as someone overflowing and abundant in compassion and mercy. And on top of this, while all of God's people are, are called to be people of mercy, God does give some of his people a special gift of mercy. See, this is a, there is a spiritual gift of mercy. We see this in Romans chapter 2, verses 68. I'll just read that to you. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. 
if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So that there's an idea that while all Christians are called to demonstrate mercy, there are some who have the gift of mercy. And the systematic theology biblical doctrine explains that this spiritual gift of mercy is the divine enablement to cheerfully detect, empathize with, and assist in meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of other people. And that's that's an important ministry within the church. It's a it's not one of those ministries that you would see typically um, on a on a Sunday morning. It's one of those behind the scenes uh, gifts that gets administered for the good of the church for the building up of the church and also for um, just ministering to the needs of unbelievers so that the gospel can go out to them as well. What, what can I say in, in conclusion, beloved? That mercy is one of the eternal perfections of God. It's one of the ways that we make God, that God makes himself visible to us. It's also one of the ways that we make God visible to those around us. How, how does the world know that that God is in us. Well, one is by our love. We know that. But that love is is uh, somehow um, truncated and shrunk down to human size if there's not also mercy associated and mixed in there with it. God, as people of God, we are to be people of the word, people who adhere to the truth. But we're also to be people of love, people who are merciful because God is merciful. Again, is that just that uh, really godly balance of truth and grace mixed together. In closing this morning, I want to read to you 2 Corinthians 4. See some of the, the mercies of God come through yet with truth. 2 Corinthians 4, I'll read verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Just think about that. That imagery in the very beginning, back to Genesis. God said, let there be light. That's what he said to you when he brought you to know himself. Let there be light. You beheld the beauty of the Savior and had faith. And, And that's what the Lord does. He uses us as ambassadors to proclaim Christ. You become a vessel of mercy as you proclaim the gospel. That 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 when the gospel goes out. He will bring that light into people's lives at his discretion in his perfect sovereignty and providence. But he does that. So we who have received mercy become the agents of distributing 
his mercy, become tools in his hands, maybe is a better way to put it. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord and God, we have reflected just on a small portion of small portions of your mercy. But I just ask, Lord, you take your word and plant it deep within us. Allow these thoughts to um, bear much fruit in our lives. Help us, Lord God, to, to think about your mercy, not just today, but this afternoon, through the week, as we reflect upon the birth of Christ later in the week. Oh God, may we just be uh, dumbfounded in worship. May we gaze at you in a, in a wonderful way, recognizing the just the immense mercy that you pour down upon us at, at our salvation, the immense mercy that you poured upon us through sending of, of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus, your immense mercy that you pour down upon so many in healing them and what you did for them, then you will do now to anyone for anyone who calls upon your name. Lord, healing, healing spiritually, even healing physically in your perfect, perfect timing, be it now or in the heavenlies. Lord, your, per, your, your death has purchased our ultimate healing, Lord, which is a great manifestation of mercy in our lives. You're the Father of all mercies. Help us to live for you, to know you, and to be merciful to those around us, Lord, who deserve no mercy, just like we didn't deserve mercy. And help us to be ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of the Christ who embodies the God of mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.